Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company is or how big the team. We showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Exployant, the one-on-one sales improvement platform that's transforming how high-growth sales leaders use Salesforce around the world. If you're one of the 97% of sales leaders that have a sales process but don't have a structured one-on-one coaching process, check out Exvoyant today. The Exvoyant team will show you how your one-on-ones with each rep can drive purpose-driven activities in a way that change careers and your organization almost immediately. If you don't have a plan on how you can help every single rep on your team improve by at least 10% this year, Exvoyant can help you grow faster than you ever thought possible. We appreciate each of our listeners and are committed to introducing you to the most innovative, most successful sales leaders in the world. If you like what you hear, please keep those reviews coming on your favorite podcast sites. Your reviews make it easier for more people to find this show and be introduced to those sales success blueprints that have helped so many. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we are joined by Kyle Morris, founder and CEO of SIF Data. Kyle has an awesome history of leading high-growth teams in a number of marketplaces. SIF Data has tripled their growth year over year with their innovative technology that helps sales, customer success, and marketing teams know when their contacts move. Kyle's built a tool proven to reduce churn, generate pipeline, and close deals faster. A former Special Operations Army Ranger, Kyle has firsthand knowledge how in business and in the military, accurate and timely intel can mean the difference between success and failure. Kyle's story is an interesting one, and I am so excited to welcome to welcome him to the show. Kyle, welcome to our show, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Rob. Excited to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Our listeners loved a mutual friend of ours, uh, Kyle, Ralph Barcy. And Ralph uh, was is a well-loved person in our community, lots of downloads of his episode. And over the holidays, our listeners should know, I got a call from my buddy Ralph saying, I got a guy you got to have on the show, and, uh, and his name is Kyle Morris. He runs a really cool company, and his story is one your listeners will love. I spent half an hour on the phone with you, and I was convinced instantly we got to have you on the show. Can you take a minute and just tell our listeners about SIF Data, uh, and then we'll get into your story? Yeah, for sure. And I'm flattered Ralph thought of me. I mean, if I if the roles were reversed, I would have referred him for sure because uh, I think he's, <laughs> a, he's the guy you got to have for sure. So I'm flattered he'd even think of me. But, um, you know, SIF data is an application into Salesforce that tracks when contacts change jobs. And really the idea came to me. I used to be an SDR and um, kind of lazy, so I'm always looking for shortcuts on how to set meetings. And I was working for a company where we were selling typically to companies north of $100 million in revenue. Uh, selling to marketers or turning over all the time is really hard to do. And I found my like niche as an SDR was like, just reach out to customers as they change jobs. I think it randomly occurred to me. I just happened to catch one of those folks who would change jobs. And then all of a sudden it was really easy to set meetings. And I found that as a, you know, we scaled as a team, that was a tactic that I used was tracking these, you know, VP of marketing at Nike moving to Adidas, like a really simple meeting to set. So I found that I had one data point there. 
And then when I moved into running business operations there, uh, our head of success was like, we keep churning accounts because our champions are leaving. I need to find a way to know when people are changing jobs and get that into Salesforce. I was like, man, I've got two data points here. I feel like this is a real problem. And I came home and started coding the application, came up with the idea and, and kind of uh, worked nights and weekends and got it to where it is now. And so uh, I left Gigia to do this full time a couple of years ago, uh, maybe a little longer than that. And yeah, we've just been growing like crazy. So it's, it's been a good ride so far. So we're going to talk about that because you know, our show, as you know, is, is for sales leaders on how do you yeah. get in high growth mode and stay there. What a killer play for any playbook on do we have an actual play around when someone switches jobs that we piggyback that business with them. I, I want to make sure we talk about that because that's something that everybody that's listening to the show should add to their playbook, right? Yeah, it's. I mean, I was when I was first coming up with like my email cadences, I was looking for case studies, infographics that just generally supported this. And I found that like HubSpot put out their top sales triggers to key off of. And then number one was executive turnover. Cause if you think of, you know, when a sales leader moves, when they're in their role, the first 90 days are critical. They're, they're looking at their existing tech stack. They're ripping out things they don't understand. And they're bringing in ones that they've used in the past. Like, Typically, a sales leader doesn't come in to keep everything status quo. It's typically to make change and kind of mix things up. And you've got a window between when they have all this budget and this political capital to make change, and then when they kind of get entrenched and bogged down with like closing deals. And so if you can kind of catch them in that window, maybe give them a week to let them find where find out where the computer in the bathroom is. And then, <laughs> you know, before two quarters in, before they're locked down, that's when you can really like initiate change with folks. And so... What we're really solving is that it takes a lot of time to keep track of the thousands of folks in your system that are changing jobs all the time. Typically about 5% of people change jobs in a given month. And that ends up being a significant portion of leads. And those folks can be really valuable because if someone's already bought your product, they can probably buy it again. They probably have budget, they've got the power, et cetera. So that's really what we're solving for. So it's just really tackling that sales trigger and like making the most of it. Yeah, that's totally relevant. I, I, I'm really glad that you took a few minutes to share that with everyone because, yeah, I, I hear that you're right. I mean, you hear people talk about that as a trigger, but to actually operationalize that across an enterprise, that's, mm-hmm. that's a really cool idea. Super, yeah. Super cool idea. So you've got this awesome background, and, and I think that as you and I were talking a little bit about what led you to sales, one of the things people love about the show they asked me to make sure we spend time on is what led you to sales? How did you become a sales leader? Can you spend just a couple of minutes sharing your story? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, growing up, I ended up joining the military, right? I mean, I was in high school on September 11th. So I ended up joining the Rangers and, and had four deployments overseas and went through that whole, that whole rigmarole, which was fantastic. Came home with all my fingers and toes. And then, um, I went to school at the University of Oregon, studied entrepreneurship there. Thank you for your service, by the way. We appreciate it. I mean, so thankful. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Um, you know, I went to school at Oregon, studied entrepreneurship, and I kind of got this bug that I wanted to work for a venture back startup in Silicon Valley. I graduated school in like 2010, which is in the middle of the recession, so it wasn't such a great time. Um, and I took a job with a Fortune 500 companies in management training, just like one of the most terrible jobs I could ever had. And 30 days in, I put an apple. <laughs> I, I accepted an offer to a startup as a business development rep 30 days into that first job. Like it was that bad. So two weeks in, I was looking for other roles. Wow. Uh, moved in and, and I didn't realize that business development kind of meant sales. I just thought I was like, yeah, I'm doing partnership stuff. I'm, you know, talking to folks. It's going to be great. In reality, I was an SDR. I mean, didn't really know what I was getting into. And I kind of just stumbled into it. And this was a company that uh, was post series A. They probably had like 25 million in revenue, but they were like primed for growth. They're tied into like 
social was pretty hot in 2010, 2011, and they had a tool that tied in social media and websites. So that was like a really sexy place to be. Awesome. So I joined the company. I was like the second group of SDRs they'd hired. There were nine of us total. Several got promoted. And so then I kind of, after about six months or so, was like the team lead. And at that point, we really started taking on funding. And over the next six years, we took on like a hundred mil. So wow. over, over the next two years, I was charged with scaling the SDR team. And we went from seven reps to 75. And that's with like 50% attrition because like my team was poached for the rest of the organization. And we found that it was a great farm league for developing people and finding talent at a relatively low cost because you're pulling kids out of school, identifying the top performers, then moving them up into another role. Made my job hard keeping the team staffed, but it was great for the company because it set the culture of they all came up through this one team. A lot of people had things in common. And so the team that I managed really had a huge impact on the company. So, I mean, we also had a weird situation where we had a two to one ratio of SDRs to AEs. Wow. So our thought was AEs should never have to set a meeting themselves. A- SDR should be doing that for them. And so what that meant was our AEs, like they'd get four or five, there were days they had eight new demos a day. They were just stacked with it. So that like one kind of made our AEs happier. And it just created this team where like at one point the SDR team was almost a third of the entire company because we're just growing so fast. So Holy yeah, it was a big challenge, um, but good time for a couple of years for sure. Yeah, that's a that's an important part of like the, the evolution of sales history. That's right in the heyday. And you just you just said something that I wasn't planning on talking about. Uh, I asked a lot of guys, you know, how do you know if you're being a, a good sales leader? How, it, you talked about how your people were getting poached all the time. Is, is that an actual indicator that you're doing a good job? Everybody wants to steal your people from you. I don't know that I was doing a good job. I was finding good people because um, <laughs> I, I have this idea that like. When you hire people, find people that are talented because they'll just find a way to be talented in anything you put them in. And so I just found folks that were really skilled and they're going to be good at whatever you put them into. They just happen to be an SDR for a minute. And so the rest of the team was scaling as aggressively as ours was. And so they just needed somebody. And it just felt like the path of least resistance to pull someone who knew the culture. They'd been vetted. Yeah, they're young. You can maybe pay them a little bit less. And so it just made it a little easier to ramp those folks up. And it also created a pipeline of or I guess like upward mobility for folks at SDRs. Like this probably played into the problem that everyone has with SDRs where after six months, you're trying to get promoted and blah, blah, blah. Like we ran into that problem too, but the problem was we were actually promoting people in six months. And so it made it even worse when we wouldn't promote some people. So it's a double-edged sword for sure. But I feel like it's great to have a culture where you're going to develop people internally and promote them rather than saying, look, you're going to be stuck in this role. Your only hope to move up is to move somewhere else. I, I personally would prefer to work for the former rather than the latter. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I'm with you on that one, man. Um, but, but it's cool. I mean, that's one of the things that everybody talks about is, is culture is one of those building blocks that we've seen and culture mm-hmm. always starts with who you bring on the team, right? Yeah, and we found that one of the best ways to scale a team, because, like, again, it was very aggressive. It'd be like every two weeks we need 10 new people on the team, and it's hard to just, you know, put, read resumes and do calls, uh, phone calls and stuff to, to find talent. So we really encouraged folks on the team to find people that they knew that were other companies and bring them in, because the idea is, like, you can do anything, even if it's terrible, with awesome people. And so if we found a person who's awesome and they know great people, you can dig a ditch with your best friend and yeah, it's digging a ditch, but it's still going to be way more fun than doing it with someone you don't like. And so we found like, if we can find people who are having a great time with the people around them, it's just going to make this job, which is really hard and can be really challenging. And some would call it mundane, uh, make it really exciting and fun and challenging for them. So that, that was one tactic we used that we felt like worked really well. 
So let me let's get into the let's get into the nitty gritty on a couple things. We always try to take an angle on the show, and mm-hmm. and with your background, I think you're kind of uniquely positioned because you've worked with the big company going through a heyday. You're also getting a, a high growth uh, startup. It's a high flying land. By the way, for our listeners, you've got some killer logos that use your use your stuff, and so uh, they they definitely ought to get, give what you're doing a look. What do you think's harder as a guy who's been in both sides? Getting into high growth mode or staying in high growth mode and why? I think that staying in high growth mode is really hard. It, it, like you look at an, a, like Tom Brady, I just watched a uh, replay of uh, the game he just dominated. Like this guy's been at the top of his game for like 20 years. It's, it's easy to be really good for a short amount of time. It's very hard to consistently be motivated to stay on top of it. Like you're waking up early, you're staying up late, you're dealing with fires. It's so hard to maintain that level of, excellence over a very long period of time. And this, I mean, same with the military, like you have folks, it's easy to get in relatively easy to get into the Rangers and be there for a few years and get out. But these guys who are doing deployments every three months out of every nine are overseas for 10 or 15 years. is just brutally hard. The first four four years is great. That's why I did it. But from years four through 15 or 20 is just really hard to step on the gas and consistently. So I think maintaining high growth is much harder than getting into high growth. I mean, when you get a round of funding of 20 million, however much you end up getting, you're going to naturally have that pressure from investors to really step on the gas. It's how do you find the internal drive to continue to do that even when you know things are kind of going well, or maybe they're going poorly. So I think I'd say it's the latter is much harder than the former. And I think that I'd probably agree with you because, you know, there's on the getting into high growth mode, you have to deal with all the things like, are you getting false positives? Are you winning yeah. because of relationships? Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, to stay in high growth mode, you've got to have systems that you can plug people into. So systems to get the right people, systems to plug them into. And, and one of the things that, um, as I think about that, is uh, the great ones that we talk to, nobody's having happy accidents. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you have like a blueprint or some non-negotiables that you say, okay, for us to stay in high growth mode, what are the things that as a leader you got to do? Not, not what do the reps got to do? What do the leaders do? Because again, you have this awesome background. You've got this, yeah. done lots of missions. You succeeded as a member of our military. You succeeded with a big company. You're succeeding with the young company. I, I have to think that this mission mentality leads to systems and blueprints that lead to winning. Any, any kind of non-negotiables for you that are part of your blueprint for leadership success? Yeah, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's founder of a company as well, like, how do we grow our business well? And I think it's really easy as you're leading a team or starting a company or whatever you're doing, it's very easy to deal with the problems right in front of you. Like squeaky wheel gets a grease. And it's very hard to take a step back and say, I'm going to think of the broader picture. Like, I need to spend one or two days a week just thinking about where I want my business to go. What products do I broadly want to release? Because I've got invoicing I to deal with. I got products that are down. I got, you know, customers to sell to. Like there's a million things I need to do right now. And it's hard to say, here's my plan for nine months from now. And I think the blueprint I would say is a mature leader who can really scale can figure out how to comfortably delegate things that need to be dealt with now and you know, develop people to be able to handle those so they can focus on the bigger vision of where they want to go. Cause it's so easy to get bogged down with the things that need the fires that are raging right this second, but you need to think of the bigger bonfire that's going to be burning in nine months that you're, you want to dominate your competitor on. So I think that that is my blueprint of like taking time to step back and think about long-term where you want to be and how you're actually going to be there. Cause 
I think you're right. People don't just luckily wing it until they're at a, a billion dollar company. They have to stop and really think about where they want to go. There's no just like, I love, I tripped into it. So this begs another question that is, you know, hard for a lot of people and sometimes myself included. How do you know what to delegate? How do you know what to hold on to? I mean, mm-hmm. as you're, as you're, one of the things that you don't want to have is variance in how things are done as a sales sure. uh, organization. And often when you start to delegate, the thing that people worry about is how much variance are we starting to get? So as someone who's been down that road, how do you know, what do you delegate? How do you delegate effectively? And then what do you choose to hold on to? And is there a structure or a constant? And, and like I said, I know this is like, we're just going down a rabbit yeah. hole right now. I'm, I'm super interested in your, in your, how you look at that. Yeah. Okay. So an application of this, when I was in the military, I was taught you can delegate authority, but never responsibility. So I can, I can delegate to you that you have the power to get this done, but I can't delegate to you the responsibility that it succeeds. That's always going to be on me. And so having your lieutenants or whoever it is that you trust to get something done, it's all about like outlining to them what your intent is. Like this is all falling back to the military as well. It's, when you have a mission, there's a thing called commander's intent. Your intent is to take the hill, right? Your intent is to storm this house and get this done. But it's not guy one is going to walk up to the door. He's going to go do this. That gets down into like micromanaging. If you've got a person that you trust to delegate, you give them the intent of what you want to accomplish and you let them figure out their own path to do it. It may be different than how you would want to do it yourself, but like they have to kind of learn. You've got to give them the, the ability to take those risks. But if you've got the intent of what you want to accomplish – They'll, they'll keep working towards that North Star. It may just be a different path than you want. So one is clearly identifying what you're looking to accomplish and broadly maybe some recommendations or get their feedback to help develop them. But I try, if I can, to pass stuff off. I've been historically bad at this. Over the last year, I've been really trying to ramp up the ability to like trust that other people are going to get done. And if they fail, it's because I didn't clearly define what I need done. I didn't tell them what I like that it was. It's on me for not delivering that and guiding them towards it and checking in and making sure that it's getting done. Okay, so commander's intent. We always get like sound drops uh, from different things. This commander's intent has my has my attention. Uh, this is different. Nobody in our podcast so far has really gone this direction. So I want to – can we stay in that just for a minute? Sure. And talk a little bit? You know, I, I get it from a military perspective, and I love how you say that drives role clarity, objective clarity, Um Commander's intent. Well, any any tips on how you actually can pass off commander's intent for uh, colleagues or people that work in your organization? Yeah. So there's um, a book that I'd recommend. There's uh, there, there's a guy I listen to a lot, uh, Jocko Willink. I'm sure a lot of folks have heard of him. He wrote love him. Love him. Yeah. Love Fantastic. Him. Uh, listen to his podcast. He talks about uh, commander's intent in a bunch of his podcasts. But like the idea is that you as a commander have so much going on that you can't get into the weeds about how it's executed. You need to give the mission statement. Like this is what I need accomplished by this time. And these are your uh, restrictions. Like trusting that the people that you're going to give this to are able to do it. And if they, if you don't think that they can, you've probably put the wrong people in place. Like that's on you to find the people that can do it. So if, if you aren't comfortable saying, look, we need to roll out a new CRM that does this, this, and this. I need you to figure out which ones can do it, and I need it done by next week. If you can't clearly delegate that to someone and trust that they're going to get it done, you should probably fire, hire someone else to do that type of role. Okay. So it, it comes down to like who, how you attract the talent and how you develop them. Because if you don't have the people that you trust, it's an obligation of yours to develop them so that they can. And, again, this comes back from the military. Like I was – 
train that if you're in a leadership position, your job is primarily to develop people to take your position. And that seems scary in the corporate world because like if I take this guy or gal and coach them on how to be me, they could take my job. In the military, that's great because that means someone, you can move up and then someone can take your job because someone should be developing you. And really the more uh, practical application is if you get shot, the guy below you should be able to snag your radio and take your role as if nothing had, like no hiccup. So it's a very practical application in the military, but also practical in business because people turn over. People have kids. They like have to leave work sometimes. And you need to have people in place that aren't just doing what they're told, but have the capacity to think and that you have developed to think. So, right. yeah, there's a lot that kind of goes into that. It's like books and books and books are written about that. I love it. All right, so delegation. What else? Anything else on your kind of non-negotiables or that goes along with delegation? Yeah, uh, I think creating systems uh, to allow people to offload work that is not, like, critical. Um, I love that one. That's another one, man. It's so funny. The great leaders are always – going to the same things and systems comes up. I cannot wait to hear what you think makes a great system. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, one of the first things that I, I mean, as I was trying to scale the business, I, uh, for SIF beta, I mean, I was doing outreach on my own. I was sending emails. I was entering leads into Salesforce. And as soon as I understood that process, I understood the market I was trying to sell to. I immediately hired like three people on Upwork and had them start doing that work for me so that I can move further down the value chain. Like I'm not particularly fantastic at, prospecting leads. I'm sure that other people are just as good at it. So I need someone else to do that so I can focus on the next thing that I don't understand. So creating a framework so that, you know, my process is always like crawl, walk, run. So I'm going to crawl, walk, run through a specific scenario. Once I completely understand it, I hand it off because I shouldn't, I don't think, and this is a mistake I think people make a lot is they try to hand something off because they don't understand it or they don't want to do it. And my belief is the opposite. Like I need to fully understand something, then I hand it off and then I move to the next. So the example that I use is when I first started selling SIF data, uh, I, I tried selling to uh, the wrong market. I was trying to sell to recruiters. I thought, oh, they care about people changing jobs. I'm going to try to sell to recruiters. That was wrong. Like they, they didn't use Salesforce. They didn't have systems very solid. So like that was a failure. Had I just like hired a bunch of people and said, go after recruiters, I would have wasted a ton of cycles and money going after that. So my first is like, understand who's the market you're trying to sell to. Then who are the people at the market you're trying to sell to? Then the third, what is the message there? Because if you start trying to dial in your messaging, but you got the wrong people at the right market, you're going to fail. Like I would have tried to sell to social media managers at, at tech companies that are high growth. That's a right market. Probably could have written a killer message, but it's just the wrong person. And so you have to go like, in the example of sales, like identify your market. Don't pass that off until you totally understand it. So the first people that I hired to do work for me is just find accounts. Just go through and find every account that could be a prospect. Had I had them just go through recruiters, I would have wasted a ton of time. So I handed that off. Then I focused myself on who are the right people. So I was like talking to as many folks as I could, got that dialed in. Then I hired a person, just find contacts. That's your only job. Just find contacts. Then I started writing messaging. And I got that really dialed in. Then I hired a person to do that. So I kind of created an assembly line. I like uh, it. Yeah. Kind of moving down the chain. And then once my messages are dialed in, I got meetings booked. So then I can just take the demos and, and it just kind of keeps moving forward from there. That's a really good idea. That's a, what a great framework. And that, I got to think though, that that doesn't just apply if you're a young company trying to figure things out. That's, that's, that construct's got to work for a company of any size, right? I think it absolutely can. Cause there's a lot of work that, I mean, you're paying SDRs. I mean, we hired kids that like went to Harvard and Penn and Brown. Like we're, we're paying them just to 
scour the internet looking for email addresses? Why don't we have them focus on finding compelling messages or interesting anecdotes that they can use rather than like finding an email address? We should hire a person just to find email addresses and offload that work because we've got people who have skills that could be applied in other ways. And that's where I'd prefer to put that effort. Like my skill is not specifically finding email addresses. My skill applies in other areas. So I'm trying to find people that can offload that. I can offload that too so that I can focus on what I'm best at. Love it. It's the same reason we have SDRs instead of sales reps, right? SDRs become very good at setting meetings. So A's can become very good at closing deals and you have that delineated on purpose. Yeah, no, it makes tons of sense. Makes tons of sense. I, I, I get it. I'm taking tons of notes. I'm burning up a freaking notepad here as I listen to you. This is awesome. Okay. So anything else on systems? Any other thoughts on that? No, I think that that's, uh, that'd be my, my kind of takeaways on that. Okay. So delegation systems, is there a third to your trifecta? Uh, delegation systems. Um, I'm sure that there is offhand. I can't think of it on. Yeah, that's all right. No problem. Those are both deep. I like you gave us some good, uh, some good tactics, uh, when to delegate. Uh, you gave us some great framework on how to build a system. Um, as I look at the system, is there, is there any way that you can validate if your system's working? I mean, do you have kind of, uh, one of our guests called it guess and check You kind of guess and, and then you do your best guess and try it. Then you check, say how it works. I, it made me laugh. I get a lot of feedback on it. Any ways of validating that your framework is working when you're doing those things before you delegate it and then move downstream? Yeah. And I like, that's, that's a really good point. Like what is the point in which you're comfortable passing this off to somebody else? And it's like, when, what's it saying? Like you shouldn't practice something till you get it right. You should practice it till you can't get it, can't wrong. Do it wrong. Yeah. I love that statement. And that's, that's one of my favorite quotes. Like, yeah. like when I got to the point where like, oh, VPs of sales, success and marketing are the ones to talk to. Every single one I talk to finds that this is applicable. Cool. I'm just going to pass those off. Like I know that that's it. I could maybe find some others, but it, like I've got that dialed in. I'm going to hand it off. And then my messaging, I got to the point where like I was consistently getting like, this is the best email I've ever received. Okay. That must be pretty good. I could keep tweaking. I could go from the 81st percentile to the 82nd, but I'm just going to move on to the next one. And there's this there's this kind of concept. Um, so I used to do a lot of CrossFit, which was tied in the military as well. And their idea is that you should be very good at any domain, any sport, right? You shouldn't just be a marathoner. You shouldn't just be a powerlifter. You should be able to do both. And the person who's theoretically the best athlete in the world is in the 80th percentile in any domain. So you put them in swimming, marathon, powerlifting, whatever you want. They're going to be 80th percentile because the effort it takes to get to the 80th percentile is hard, but to the 81st is much harder. 82nd is very hard. And so if you can get to the 80th percentile in everything you do, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be pretty good. You just get it good and move on to the next thing so you can get the next thing up to the 80th percentile. So that's kind of like if I had a third framework, it's like perfect is the enemy of good. Don't wow. try to make it absolutely perfect. Just get it pretty darn good and move on because good is, is good. That's really good advice. Again, I guarantee you there's a lot of people listening right now that they're getting an aha moment. Their eyebrows are going up. They're saying that speaking to them because I'm guilty of that myself. There are many times where I want it to be bulletproof. I want it to be perfect. And you think to yourself, how much, what's the, what's the variable gain from that last? There's opportunity cost to go from 81st, 82nd percentile in anything is more significant than getting to the 80th in something else. And so I'm, I'm not going to be the best in any domain, but I'll be pretty good anywhere. Love it. All right. So let's, let, we're, I, I can't believe it. It always happens, man. We're, <laughs> we're running down on time. It's, it's coming up on it. I, I have a couple more questions that I wanted to talk about before we, we sort of wrap things up. Sure. I'm really fascinated with uh, your process that you've built right now for outbound. Mm -hmm. 
I think our, as you described it to me, I think that our sales leaders will love it because leads and opportunity management is always, always, always a yeah. top priority. Could you talk about how you're doing that? Yeah. Uh, so we are 100% email only. We don't do any cold calling and it's all remote. So we have one SDR who's kind of handling everything overseas. And um, like I said, that process happened because I dialed in this assembly line of first market, then contacts, then message, right? Um, and what we're fortunate with is that our product identifies when people change jobs. And everyone always says, you know, when you send an email out, you need to be creating value, but that's really hard to do. Our product lends itself to it because we identify when people change jobs. The thing that we do is we track when companies, uh, testimonials and case studies change jobs. So I reach out to the VP of sales of company X and I say, Hey, your top customer just left from Dell to Coca-Cola. He left two weeks ago. Here's his testimonial. Do you have time to talk about how we're helping companies like X, Y, and Z do this? Wow. And people are, and it's a hundred percent automated. My SDR only responds to people responding to us. Um, and that, that didn't come overnight and it didn't, I couldn't have just like on day one built this when I started SIF data. It had to come from me getting so tired of writing these emails that I could automate part of it or even like have it pre-templated and then copy paste that and sending that in a Gmail. And then we got to the point where it's going out in the cadence. And so like, I'm kind of losing how, like what I'm trying to answer for you, but the concept is that. No, I get it, dude. I get it. How are those received? So when you send those out and you know, your, your number one competitor has now done this or your number one, how are those received? You've got to have interesting response rates on that. Uh, they're, I feel like they're pretty good. Um, uh, I'm not disciplined about tracking the metrics on that, but I, every single week I get an email from someone saying this is the best email I've ever received. And they don't know that it's hundred percent automated. So I literally have a person who finds contacts. I have a person that takes screenshots. I have a person that copies screenshots of testimonials. That all is tracked. We monitor, oh, a job change just happened. We get new screenshots, dumps into a template, and it goes out automatically. Like on 6 a.m. on Monday morning, email's going out saying, VP of X, your customer just moved. You're going to churn it because you're in customer success. Hit up the CEO and head of sales saying, this is a new prospect for you tomorrow. You could sell them right away. It's NFP4, blah, blah, blah. And our response rates are typically pretty good. I find that like a company we reach out to, 50% will get back to us and wow. take a meeting. Like people are responding, whether it's like, wow, this is really pertinent. This is important. Like maybe they're saying no, but like we're getting massive amounts of responses and it tends to be positive. That is a killer process. I love it. So again, so what, what if you just, you just gave us a system. So this is a system. You talked about systems are important. Yeah. What a, what a great outbound system. That's leading to a 50% response rate. That's, that's ridiculous. Um, has that, has that helped you with how you scale that having a system like that? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's led itself to, I'm the only employee of SIF data. And so I don't have to hire this big team and I'm able to run much more lean, which is ideal. Like I don't, I would, I prefer not to take on a ton of funding and, you know, see how far I can grow this business on my own. And it gives me this like, breathing room to focus on the other parts of the business. I'm not sitting there sending emails or making sure my SDR is doing it. The system is doing it and it's working. And I spot check it, of course, and make sure that I have backstops in place, but I'm not sitting around like dealing with all the issues that come with that. And I have fewer people that I've got to manage. It just makes a company lighter and more nimble. And so I'm probably, I could, I could improve. My emails could be better. I could start calling, doing other things, but I've hit the 80th percentile and I'm focused on other parts to make the business more effective. So I feel like that's, it's where I want to be. All right. I got one more question before we wrap it up the way we wrap up everything. Yeah. So you've seen a lot. You've worked with a lot of different organizations now and, and even sales organizations are buying your stuff from you now. Yeah. Um, 
as you look at sales leaders and you look at your career and the ones that you've worked with, how do you know when a leader is having great impact with their teams? Is there anything that jumps out at you as things that they've done that, that it's more than just sales, I guess it's more than just the scoreboard. Yeah, I totally agree. Cause I've, I've company I've been at, we grew like crazy despite poor leadership. Like it's like a sales leader was the e-break on us, even though we continued like despite their best efforts. Yeah. So like in my mind, the sign of a good leader that they're having a killer impact on their team is that when a, that leader is going to leave at some point, if everybody wants to follow them, that to me is like the biggest indicator that that is a person. Like if a sales leader comes in 10 people, they are able to hire 10 people tomorrow. That's indicative that they know what's up because those people see that person at their best and at their worst. And they know their worst is still worth it. I love it. That's a great way of looking at it. That's a common question that I ask on here and, and you gave a different answer than we've ever heard, which I really appreciate. That's a really great answer to that question. What do most people say? What's like the, the go-to? It's all over the place. We have people say, like one of my favorite answers came from Sean Murray of um, mm-hmm. Sales Loft. I don't know mm-hmm. Sean. He said, uh, and this is a really, another really great answer. He said, do people come for you for help? And, huh. and he said, you know, if they only talk to you when they have to, yeah. uh, and they aren't coming to you because they genuinely value your help, that's a really good indicator on how good you are as a sales. Huge sign of trust. I would not disagree with that at all. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that answer, but yours is a good one too. That's, that's a really good answer. And everybody sees different. That's why I like it is because we've got to move past just the scoreboard as leaders. Yeah. We want to know that we're having impact in other ways, right? Yep. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to wrap it up the way we wrap up everybody. This has been fast. I love how your story is so good, man. Kyle, congratulations on what you've accomplished, first of all. And thank you for spending a few minutes with us today. Our listeners, I'm sure, are going to be very appreciative of the insights that you shared so far. I'm going to finish the way I always do. I ask everybody um, this question. What is the biggest challenge you've, you've faced as a high-growth leader, and, and how do you attack it? Uh, so ours was growing SDR team, like finding talent. It's so, so hard to do. And finding good talent that's going to stick around and – in short, I look for three things when I'm hiring people. One is a track record of success. You know, people who are successful are going to continue to be successful. Second one is cultural fit. Do I want to sit next to this person for a long, long time? And third is, do they have the capacity? Like, do I feel like they could be good at this job? And typically people who are just generally successful are going to find a way to be successful. So finding good talent, I find those three things that I always looked at were the, the key to it. I like that. That's, that might be the mother of all challenges is keeping your, <laughs> keeping your team filled Brutal. with the right people, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, that's, that's a good answer. I like that. All right. Uh, final question is the same one that everybody gets. Um, readers, I mean, sorry, leaders are readers. We see that happen over and over. The leaders just don't stop trying to make themselves better. Yeah. As you look at the kind of the, there's so much to read now. There's so much content out there. There's content overload. Anything you recommend to our listeners as they go down their leadership journey? Anything that you would say, read this, put this in your library for sure? Yeah, I would say I kind of refer to it, but Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. I think it's one of the best books to uh, like clearly outlines how you as a leader need to, to act. Like everything is on you. If something doesn't work, that's on you. And I think if you can get that mentality as a leader and get the, the team around you with that mentality, I think that there's nothing you can't really do. It's a great, great book. 
Yeah, I like that one. That's a good one. We'll we'll get that on our library uh, attached to you as well. There's a couple of guys that said the same thing. That's a very popular leadership book. And I, for those of you that still are on the fence on if you're going to get it, freaking get it, buy it, <laughs> get the Audible. You'll be glad you did. It's it's a great book. I love worth it for sure. Yeah. All right. So how do we get more of you? So the listeners are saying, I love this guy. I love what they're doing. Or maybe I'm interested in this service, this idea of, of tracking changes. And how do, how, do, how do they get more from you? How do they get more from SIF data? Yeah. It, I mean, if there's anything I can do to help, if folks want to talk through kind of these concepts of automating, Kyle at SIFData.com. I'm, I love to share this idea with folks. I like, I, I don't feel like I need to be selfish and keep it to myself. Like anything I can do to help folks, just reach out. And then on LinkedIn, I mean, I try to post content there kind of consistently, try to do blog posts and stuff. So uh, that's that's the best way. I'm not super diligent about Twitter, so LinkedIn's probably the way to do it. All right, man. This was a fantastic episode. Uh, Kyle, thanks again for joining us. His name is Kyle Morris. He's the founder of SIF Data. Uh, he is leading the charge with commander's intent, taking every hill along the way. Uh, by making sure that they delegate and have systems that uh, are, are bulletproof. Kyle, thank you so much and happy selling. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? And, and I was really excited when Ralph Barcy called me and asked me to inter, uh, interview Kyle on our show. I, I really like Kyle's story. I really like, I really like Kyle's background. I love that he's led large teams, uh, to, to massive growth. And he's now building a company that if you go check out SIF data, they're having some pretty cool success stories with some logos that I think you'll be interested in. And there's two things that really jumped out at me as I listened to his, his, uh, conversation with me. I went back and reviewed it that I think is important for every one of us as sales leaders to really consider and make part of our game. And the first that jumped out at me is when he talked about, you know, where do you delegate? How do you help people become expert? How do you help people become proficient? There's a concept that we talk about a lot as coaches, and we didn't talk about it in the context of coaching today, but but it's in the in the context of anything you do to have people be successful in their role, which he addressed. And it's this, intent is more important than technique. I'm going to say it again. Intent is more important than technique. And, you know, when we're working with people, the most important thing that we need to do is be authentic. The most important thing we need to do is have people realize that we are in this to help them win. You know, I remember when Mark Smith was on this podcast with me, he said no salesperson is working their butt off to make it so their boss can buy a Ferrari. And, I love how he was talking about de- delegation, that you nail it first and then you figure out how to scale it. And and that the important thing is that we make sure that we have commander's intent. This is the objective. What is your version of commander's intent? Because it's always going to be more important than technique. I, I got a question from a different sales leader uh, earlier this week saying, you know, I love this the coaching stuff we're working on. My question is how important is my ability to build rapport and the soft skills and the EQ skills and all those things. And I'm not going to diminish those. But listen, we don't need to have everybody be our best friend. We don't have to barbecue with them on the weekend. It's great if we can, but what I don't want to do is choose the rapport over making sure we have clarity of intent. And and so I think that that intent is always more important than technique. And it's why role clarity is always the, the lever that moves the sales needle the fastest. And too many sales leaders, I think, lose track of what he called very, very eloquently commander's intent. And you ought to ask yourself, 
what is my degree of intent as I work with each of my reps? Do they know when I have a one-on-one, for instance, that the intent is only to help them improve? Because if the intent is clear, they never feel micromanaged, they never feel babysat, they never feel squashed, they only feel empowered, and they feel like they have someone that's trying to help them. That's a big deal, and I'm seeing it occur more and more, and that's why I felt like when I heard him talk about that, I wanted to expound on that and really have you stop and think, what would my reps say about my intent when I work with them? Because what I believe is if our intent becomes more authentic, we will see a lot of other things, not just just production improve. I think you'll see things like, retention improve. I think you'll see the percentage of people that participate in hitting quota improves. There's just a lot of things that will happen if people really believe that you're authentic in your intent, which takes me to the second one. He's growing a company and helping others by leveraging a concept that I think is worth talking about. It's not his technique. Again, uh, intent is greater than technique. That's the theme of this interview today, I think. He's growing through triggers, and I don't know if we have enough trigger-type marketing going on right now. I love his trigger. His trigger that's working is, you know, watching people, uh, watching when their testimonials and case studies change jobs, and they use that so they're instantly relevant. They're instantly able to tie into problems. They're instantly able to, um, to really have someone say, wow, this is someone who gets me. I've I've had a lot of opportunities to talk to sales orgs about this, where people say, "How come I'm not getting any responses to my outreach?" You know, and if you heard him say, it's 100% outbound, and and he's killing it right now, 50% uh, response rates. That should get everybody's attention. 50 50%. How do we do that? Well, I got a background. I got a minor in philosophy when I was in, in college. We always had to do these philosophical proofs, and here's one for you that relates to prospecting. Not, not I'm sorry, no response equals you weren't interesting. Not interesting equals you didn't hit on a problem. Not hitting on a problem equals there is no meeting. And so I'd like you to think about that. You know, are you interesting? You know, because what makes you interesting isn't just how creative you are, though sometimes that matters. The real question is, can you have them realize that you get them? And I like what Keenan said on a couple of weeks ago interview. He said, you know, if I can def- if I can discover the problem, they think I can solve the problem. I think that's a great way to end. What are you using to make sure that you're having triggers that can be replicated? And this intent is greater than technique, I think, applies to everything. How you engage your reps, how you engage your prospects, how you engage your customers. So I'd like to wrap up today's interview with really spend some time this week thinking about how do I become more intentional? How do I make sure that my intent is clear? Because technique is not that big a deal if you have really good intent. Because the more purposeful your intent is, the more purposeful and and predictable your outcomes will be. I hope you enjoyed listening to this former member of our Special Forces unit. Uh, I, I hope you continue to enjoy the show. Thank you so much for all the outreach that we're getting. Keep sending us those recommendations of other people that we should be interviewing. Please, please, please keep giving us all of those great reviews on your podcast site. And as always, happy selling. Don't worry. We got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. 
The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exploit, the modern sales leadership platform for Salesforce.com users. You can visit Exvoyant at exvoyant.com.